Welcome to this edition of the Disciples Men podcast with your hosts, Greg Alexander and Alex Ruth. Thank you for joining us as we explore the many challenges of being man of faith in these challenging times. Disciples Men is a ministry of Disciples Home Missions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. Let's listen in today's conversation. Welcome to another edition of the Disciples Men podcast. I'm Alex Ruth, your Associate Director of Disciples Men, and we have a guest with us today, but we also have our Director of Disciples Men, Greg Alexander. Greg, good to be with you today. Great to be with you, Alex, and I'm really excited about our guest today. So you want to introduce who we're talking with today? I would love to. Greg, today we have with us Chris Dorsey, and Chris is the president and CEO of Disciples Home Missions and our boss. We are glad to have you with us today, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for the podcast. Happy to do it, Alex. Chris, we're just like 10 days away from getting started with the General Assembly, which is the big event for us disciples. And you have tons of responsibility related to that. So again, a big special thanks for taking this time to be with us. When we do our interviews with our guests, one of the things we love to do is say, who are you? We want the whole church to know who our new outstanding leader in DHM is. So tell us a little bit about who Chris is. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So my name is Chris Dorsey, and in addition to serving as president and CEO of Disciples Home Missions, I've had a number of roles and responsibilities throughout the church and in higher education. I actually grew up in Texas, Houston, Texas, to be exact. Went to school at the University of Texas at Austin. Hook them horns. Hook em horns. <laughs> I was um, born there. <laughs> oh, wow. Lucky you. So you are <laughs> a born and bred Texan. So that's I've, I've got a card carrying, you know, card carrying Texas. <laughs> that means a lot in Texas, I assure you. So, and after college, I majored in chemistry and computer science as my minor. And after college, I did some work in computer programming and executive sales, data analysis work. Was living out in the Bay Area for a while, heading up the West Coast office for a, a tech firm. And at some point during my time, in what was shaping up to be a pretty successful sales career, I began to think about the meaning of life and what what I was going through and how I understood the meaning of my life. And that's when I began to discern a sense of call. So Mm -hmm. at that point, I left my job, decided to just take whatever savings I could and go back to school. And I attended a church at that time and talked to the minister about my call to ministry Went to seminary at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and Methodist School in Chicago, Evanston to be exact. And from there, it was a very short distance to get into the disciples. I didn't grow up disciples, just to be clear. I grew up Baptist, actually. And while I was in seminary and I was Methodist at the time, I was telling one of my professors how I was kind of struggling with the polity of the Methodist church and around bishops and all ages baptism. And so she suggested that I take a look at the Disciples of Christ. And that was Ruth Duck. She's a famous worship leader. And uh, Ruth Duck told me to check out Disciples. And I did. And I I found a home. I found a home because I consider myself to be very ecumenically focused in my ministry. 
I love the independence that we have and we appreciate in congregational independence and the freedom that we have. And so, yeah, I joined the disciples and that's where I was ordained. Like I said, I held a few jobs. I was a hospital chaplain for the HIV AIDS clinic at the Cook County Hospital. I've served as a university chaplain at Clark Atlanta University down in Atlanta, Georgia. I also served as vice president of development, fundraising and marketing for Chicago Theological Seminary. And I was a seminary professor at Western Theological Seminary, where I taught both theology and I taught preaching. So with all of that, somehow I got encouraged to apply for the president's position at Helm, Higher Education and Leadership Ministries. And I was selected to do that. And when I was called to become president of Helm, it was a really good fit. I love the idea of working in general ministry. The educational part was a good fit for me, but I also felt I had other gifts to give to the church. And so when the opportunity came to apply for the position at DHM, after being encouraged by several people that I trust and love, I decided to apply. And the rest, as they say, is history. Good for us. Yeah. Good for us. Yeah, Thank definitely. you. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Well, you're still relatively new in the position. What, a year? Has it been a little over a year now? Oh, it will be exactly a year on August 1st. So I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary in this job. Okay, Uh, that's great. We'll we'll all be together at General Assembly to celebrate your one-year work anniversary. So that'll be fun. Chris, what are some things that the church as a whole needs to hear, needs to learn about DHM? We are so large sometimes that it's kind of ambiguous as to what Disciples Home Missions really is and does. So you had to kind of encapsulate that. What would that message be? Yeah, thanks you for the opportunity. I usually start with a brief history, not an extensive history, but I tell people that the history of DHM goes back to 1849 and the creation of, at that time, what was the American Christian Missionary Society. And out of the Stone Campbell movement, there was a lot of growth to our churches. A lot of churches were either becoming newer, affiliating with the movement, and there just was tremendous growth during that time period. One of the things that churches were eager to do was to participate in missions. Now, you have to understand in the 1800s, mission was about witnessing to others and introducing people to Christ, but it was also about doing the transformative work within society, attending to issues that were plaguing this growing country, whether it was orphans or widows or people struggling with poverty. There were lots of issues that were of concern to disciples in the 1800s, in addition to sharing the gospel, both here in North America and abroad. And so the American Christian Missionary Society became what Alexander Campbell termed as a way of participating in collaborative mission or cooperative mission amongst congregations. You know, disciples at that time, still to some extent, weren't really interested in the kind of denominational infrastructure that others had, but they did want to participate in shared mission. And so that's where the first mission organization came into existence. And so Disciples Home Missions traces its history back to that point, along with the Division of Overseas Ministries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a lot of work was done both to send out missionaries abroad, as well as in the South and other parts of North America, and to really engage in doing the work to transform society. And then about 
1863, something that we were all familiar with, or most of us who are familiar with U.S. history know about, the Civil War was going on, and the American Christian Missionary Society took a stance and issued a statement in support of the North and against slavery. And that created some pretty big challenges for us mm -hmm. as a church. Yeah. A lot of churches were not particularly fond of that. They didn't think that this was the, the stance that the American Christian Missionary Society should take. Let's be clear. They didn't like the existence of the American Christian Missionary Society. And so this became an easy lightning rod to say, see, we told you this was going to happen. Uh, but the American Christian Missionary Society stuck to its position. And of course, the North prevailed and, and eventually the, the country was united. But it left a mark on our church. In many ways, that mark didn't really heal, and it would manifest itself in a split much later. Yes. The reason why I start with those two pieces is that you take the mission piece, which is what it was in its earlier phases. You take the advocacy piece by making a statement about justice and about mercy and fairness. They were taking a position to say, we as disciples, at some point, we need to use our collective voices to speak on issues that are of significance and are important. And then later, after the creation of what became the United Christian Missionary Society, which is a merger of all these different boards, these different mission boards, the infrastructure that became the United Christian Missionary Society began to take on a lot of programmatic responsibilities to support congregations to do things like Christian education, to create opportunities to develop youth ministry, a search and call process or a search and call system of some sort and higher education. And all these different components came into existence. And many of them, these programs were housed in United Christian Missionary Society. Of course, once we get to the middle of the 19th century, we go through restructure and the emergence of the full infrastructure that we have now as a church, DHM uh, became the place to house all of those programs or to continue all of those programs. It has continued its legacy of mission. It has continued its legacy of advocacy. And so to put it succinctly, what I tell people DHM is, is it's mission, advocacy, and programs. Hmm. What DHM does is it engages in mission on behalf of the church. We are still committed to the cooperative work of mission, where we work on behalf of all the disciples' churches to engage in mission, whether it's Green Chalice or contributing to the mission sites that we work with or disciples volunteering. These are all the kinds of mission work that we do as an organization. We also do advocacy work. We at least reflect on and encourage people to use their collective voices and their actions to engage in issues that God cares deeply about and that we as a church should care deeply about. Mm -hmm. And then there's a programmatic piece. We still are really strongly committed to programs that resource congregations, that resource mm -hmm. regions, that help them to become stronger and to engage in mission and ministry in their local settings. So mission advocacy and programs are the key priorities of DHM. They always have been. Uh, what we're doing right now is we're just making sure that we are focused on those three areas of work and those ways of being a general ministry in order to best serve the church and to engage in partnership and ministry with others. Wow, that's, that's a brilliant 
description. I thank you for that. My buttons are popping off my vest right now. <laughs> part of this, so. I feel like I was talking forever. So hopefully, hopefully everybody stuck with me while well, I just. Well, on. thanks everyone for joining us. <laughs> you know, Chris, when I began ministry in the very early '80s, one of the for me one of the key ministries back then was the Division of Homeland Ministries was the Department of Church and Society. Yeah. And I said for a long time that I felt like when that department had to close because of financial issues, our church really suffered a blow that I'm not sure we ever truly realized because as a local pastor, I depended on the news releases, the wonderful scholarship that went into unpacking the controversial issues that we were dealing with. I just found that was a wonderful resource. I was privileged to work with Raleigh Files, one of the early people with environmental ministries. I was on that task force. And when that disappeared, it felt like there was a big hole mm. that was left in disciples that I'm not sure until just recently, I've seen that hole start to close in a good way. And I'm personally thrilled that DHM is reclaiming the advocacy Role. I don't know whether we live in a time in which it could be as proficient as it once was with how it provided such marvelous resources for us, because with all the social media and stuff now, it'd be great if we had something like that. But I'm just so grateful for the advocacy being named as one of the priorities. All three of us would absolutely agree how vital that is to ministry. I, so I, but I appreciate that. heard it stated. Yeah, just yeah. hearing it stated is great. I think that you're absolutely right. I think it's a crucial part of what we should and can do as a church, and there needs to be a coordinated way of doing it. And so DHM, as you said, with the Office of Church and Society had done that for a long time. And we continue to do some of it through like refugees and immigration ministries and other smaller components, but we just haven't had the kind of concerted and focused way of doing that work. And so this new era that we're moving into allows us to focus more. And to be honest, there are other people throughout the church who are doing that work. Oh, yeah. Doing some of it. The Center for Public Witness is doing some of it. DOM has a piece of it. And what we're doing at DHM is we're trying to reclaim that part of us that should mm -hmm. be on advocacy and to figure out how can we begin to support congregations and regions who are just really eager to do this or even amplify what's happening out in the regions and out in the congregations. Yes. Because we understand as we are disciples that sometimes things happen out in the congregations. And if we as disciples, home missions can help amplify what's happening and share with other people, I think that's what we do best as disciples. I get, I give people the example all the time. And Greg, you're familiar with this from Kentucky of Green Chalice right. as an example that grew up in Kentucky through the hard work of Carol Devine and others. And now it's a part of DHM. So it started out as a way of Kentucky disciples being committed to addressing climate change and developing programs to help congregations to do better at reducing carbon emissions. And as it grew, it took on a more focus on all of North America, and now it's a part of DHM. And so to the extent that when advocacy issues are present out in the church, that we can come in and support what's happening in regions and congregations, we want to do that. 
And if we have the ability to amplify it to the point where we use our platform to, to spread it all across North America, then we would love to do that as well. And that's certainly a ministry that's near and dear to my heart. Carol's done a remarkable job and others in making yeah. it happen. Just a couple of examples from my experience of DHM. I was like you, Chris, I didn't grow up disciples. I've almost been in ministry with the disciples as long as I've been with the disciples. So I didn't know much about DHM before I became a pastor. Through the connections that I've made being on staff, I've been able to really have some meaningful resources that other people are developing and working on. And then we can just I can bring them over and, and share them and use them in my context. A lot of those, when I was in congregational ministry in Missouri, were getting information from ministries across generations. And I've had, developed a really meaningful relationship with Monique Crane Spells recently, and she's helped out with some leadership stuff here in Illinois and Wisconsin in a region that have been very meaningful. Fostering those relationships, seeing what's already happening somewhere and sharing that with other folks who might be in a similar situation. It's a very valuable thing. And it speaks to some of the foundational ethos, I think, of who we are as disciples of Christ, who we are as a denomination. I really like what you just mentioned, Alex, and I want to emphasize that's the other thing that I've been hoping to bring to DHM. All of those pieces exist. All of those different components exist at DHM. But for a long time, one of the challenges that we've had as a ministry is that they've often operated sort of as independent you know, entities or ministries that everyone knows and everyone uses when they need it, but they don't necessarily see it as a connected whole. I think Ministries Across Generation is an example of moving in that direction where we're taking more of an integrated approach, but I'd like to even take it further. So the example that I give is like you take the advocacy piece. So we've got a director for justice and advocacy ministries. Um, that person really should be working with the different ministries of DHM to ensure that whatever advocacy components can be woven into the work that's mm -hmm. being done, that it can be done in that way. If we have someone who is responsible for coordinating ministry with youth and young adults, then that person should be talking to Chalice Press about how do we introduce Chalice Press to youth and young adults and people who work with youth and young adults at an early age. What I'm really trying to figure out, and I don't want to leave out Disciples Men, but Disciples Men has already and should be deeply engaged with Christian education and faith formation, because if we're really concerned about offering content and helping to impress upon people what it means to be a fully formed and, and fully engaged Christian, then working between ministries of disciples, men, and Christian education and faith formation is just an important part. And so what I'm really eager to do and I'm grateful for the support of the staff of, of DHM and, and their willingness to go there is to create a more integrative approach so that we all, and I use this word a lot, coalesce together as a ministry. And coalescing means that we come together and we grow together and we figure it out together. It doesn't mean that one takes on more prominence than another. It means that we all find our space together. And to be honest, that's actually the nature of Christian community. Yeah. Christian Amen. community yes. is about coalescing. We live in a very 
fractured world and a fractured country. And a Absolutely. lot of that comes from historical and contemporary patterns of, of oppression and exclusion. But what's so important is that for those of us who are here now is that we deal with the history, but we also understand how do we move forward together. I think that's where DHM is headed. So we have some ministries that have existed at DHM for 80 years. We have others like, you know, Green Chalice as an example, that have been around for 16 years. That doesn't mean that the one has been here for 80 years is more important or more prominent than one that's only been around for 16 years. Right. It means that in the world that we live in now, what we really need to focus on is how is this 80-year-old ministry and the 16-year-old ministry working collaboratively together? It's kind of like a household. I had a, a very intergenerational household for a long time. My mother, who was 72, my daughter, who was 19, and then I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not going to say my age, but I'm <laughs> in the middle of those. And when you live in an intergenerational household, you kind of learn mm -hmm. um, how to navigate that. And we live Absolutely. in an intergenerational and interracial, a very mixed society. And so I'm eager for us to figure out how to use the model of working together collectively to integrate all of our ministries together. I think you know that uh, Alex and I applied and received the Scott grant before COVID, and that's got in the way of us getting it implemented. And the whole idea was to bring representatives together from all of our ministries, Oprah Espana, National Convocation, NAPAD, to help us understand how we need to resource to each other in developing men's resources for the whole church. And we're still waiting for that opportunity to materialize so we can make that happen. But that's been a part of the ministry that Alex and I have shared from the from day one is we've understood ourselves to be a reintegrated partner. Sometimes it feels like we've been left on the curb. That's mm. not you. That's history. And for good reason. I think we've displayed kind of a childishness that probably warranted us being put on the curb for a while, giving our own time out <laughs> together. And we're hoping that we're helping move that back in the right direction and that disciples men can take its full seat at the table again as we begin to help with the coalescing that you're talking about. I believe this is a long overdue necessary move and uh, quite excited about that. And I don't think we can function anymore as isolated ministries. I think we have to understand how what we do impacts disciples, women, children, and youth, justice ministries. How can our voice be a voice that amplifies those realities and those needs and be a full partner of those ministries too? And so I'm excited about where DHM is going under your leadership. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, one of the things that we've seen change is there was a time, again, way back when, when DHM was a primary resource for all congregational resources. When I started in the early 80s, we got Sunday school curriculum. We got men's resources. Almost everything that we got came out of DHM for congregational ministry. Yeah. And then, of course, all that changed. Finances, you know, the church shrunk a little bit. The rise of the internet, social media, you know, now there is just an abundance of resources from everywhere. I'm curious as a person who's been in higher education, mm. how do you see DHM providing resource in the world in which we live in today when we're not the only game in town? Mm. Yeah. 
So I, this is really an excellent question, Greg, and it gives me an opportunity to share what I know to be the case. I was in theological education for a number of years and in higher education more broadly for even longer than that. And one of the things that the U.S. context has had to grapple with is uh, the diversification of education and the transformation of different pedagogical approaches. So think about it in the in the U.S. context. So for much of the U.S. history, education and the content around education, not just in public education, but in church education as well, was offered as a homogenized product that fit your standard white middle-class context. Right. And we don't live in a world like that. I almost want to say anymore, but to be honest, that the world never was like that. We just never was. We just acted like that. That's right. But we now see that that's not what the world is that we live in. It's not the U.S. And and so I'm grateful that people are starting to recognize that we need to have diverse expressions of Christian content that fits the particular context in which people live and do ministry. And so that's a more challenging way to approach it because it means we may not be able to send out one Sunday school curriculum Mm -hmm. for 3,200 congregations and assume it's going to fit the bill for all of those congregations because it really won't. And so then to your point, what we have to figure out how to do is how to support and even facilitate the emergence of context-specific resources that meet the needs of an increasingly diverse society and increasingly diverse church. And so part of what we're trying to figure out how to do is, and again, it's a reality that we're living into, is that's going to mean that we may need to partner with others. We may not be able to be the one-stop shop to provide Christian education content or youth ministry content. I This is just an, as an aside. I just took, we were, I was talking with Brad Lyons over at Chalice Press, and we were going through the calendar. There's a denominational calendar that goes out into the planning guide. And he was asking me about these two weeks on the calendar. One was I think young adult week and another was youth week. And so I reached out to to Randy Cuss and I said, Randy, what is this about? And he said, oh yeah, we used to have a week where we would send out materials and every congregation would get them and we'd provide resources for youth week. Mm -hmm. So he sent me a couple of examples. And while I recognize the value of that in its time and in its place, I also recognize there's no way we could do anything like that right, today. Right, right, right. It just right. would not work. And so what we're trying to do is figure out what does it mean to facilitate the emergence and the coming into being of context-specific resources. So the example I give around youth ministry is helpful for this. So we're going to be conducting five different sessions around the country in five different regions where we've got someone coming in who does a lot of work with youth and we're designing these these sessions these events to be context specific so if there are two or three churches in a particular area a particular city that we're going to bring together we're really looking at what are the demographics of that area what are the issues that they're struggling with what are the opportunities for youth ministry in those contexts and we're creating these five different they're, they're going to be very different types of events that are context specific and we're doing that as a way of helping them to springboard 
what they're going to be doing from now on in that area. So we're not sending them out resources and say, hey, here's your latest and greatest in terms of youth ministry. We're coming in, we're talking to them, we're getting some information on what their situation is, and then we're designing something with the regions that is going to be a meaningful event. And that becomes a springboard for those who are in that area continuing Mm -hmm. beyond that. So that model allows us to partner with regions instead of just dumping something into the regions and saying, here, make this work. (laughs) This is something that we anticipate will work for all 32 regions. You just have to figure it out. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do is say, let's use whatever resources we have Mm -hmm. to partner with others to figure out how do we support what's happening or to nurture what's happening out in, in different contexts. I think there's still some testing to be done in this. I think gone are the days when we do just one big national youth event, you know, where we just say, let's just have a thousand young people come together. And don't get me wrong, young people are very pliant, pliable, and they're easier to get together. But that's not what youth ministry is like anymore. It really needs to be a little bit more specific to the context. And so that's what we're aiming for. Just one quick follow-up, and that's about, you mentioned Challenge Press. The, uh, one of the reasons why Alex and I refrain from putting our material, getting them published that way, is number one, the length of time it takes. And we've already discovered that we make edits, send it out, and within six weeks, we discover we got to make more edits. And so I'm not quite sure how the publishing world responds to the rapidity of change and need in, in our world. That's not our conversation, but it does seem to me like you're a big tech guy and rightfully so, and that that may be the best place for us to go and how we try to connect our resources with congregations, regions, whatever. And so that's why we've stayed with what we've done because we know it's an evolving ministry. So yeah, one of the things that's happened in the publishing industry, and I know that Brad and others are aware of this, is that ed tech has become a pretty prominent way of offering content. And so ed tech is a combination of of printed resources, digital resources, video resources that convey content out into the world. And so I think what DHM is hopefully going to be able to do is by partnering with Chalice and others is to develop an ed tech strategy that says, hey, we want to get content out there across these different platforms And there's a way in which we can get the content out in a timely fashion, as well as ensure that the the content can be refreshed more easily than just a printed book. Yeah, great. It's going to take us a while. So we're exploring, we're looking at some e-commerce platforms and we're looking at some other ed tech strategies. And so hopefully in the next, you know, within the next year or so, we'll be able to, to begin testing some of this out. Great. Can't wait. It's been exciting to me in our meetings and in this conversation to hear the connection points that you bring forward, Chris, that I've seen in congregational ministry, I'm seeing now in regional ministry, and we're seeing them also at the general church level with our work with Disciples Men at DHM, in that the importance of context, the importance Mm -hmm. of partnership, and the importance of coming alongside and not subsuming control or ownership or leadership. And I think that's particularly important for us to think about from the perspective of disciples men, because 
that was the way things were once that male dominant come in, take charge. I'm the expert. I'm a leader. I need to do what I say. It's going to, these five points will work in every church ever. And that's, (laughs) that may have been true at some point in time, not in my ministry. And I don't think in my lifetime, that ability to focus in on partnership, cooperation is vital. And a lot of what has been happening from my perspective within Disciples Men, with the new Men's Discipleship Council. And, you know, we're thinking along those same lines, the likelihood of sessions happening as a denomination-wide event ever again in the future, eh, that's more tenuous. But I think we could do clusters of regions. You know, we could do multiple session light like events throughout the denomination. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think for us, that's hopefully a model that we're going to be exploring a little bit more again with these youth events. And so maybe others will do similarly. I think the regions, the model of regional ministry, I'm going to step on the third rail here. <laughs> the model of re- regional ministry that we've inherited is one that is also going to have to be a little bit more flexible. Yeah, absolutely. So, people don't live their entire lives in one no. region anymore. No. And they don't even see themselves as a collective region because they have stronger relationships with someone in California and they're yes. in Tennessee. And so they want to be able to conceive of themselves as connected in very different ways. That's not to say that regions are going away. It's to say that we need to better understand how to make the regional model work in this day and age and going forward, given that people connect in so many different ways. Sometimes people connect based on affinity, affinity groups. And so they may all be urban churches dealing with the same issues of gentrification or something. Mm -hmm. And they see that there's a church in downtown Memphis that has more in common with a church in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. And they want to be able to develop connections with those churches and figure out what does it mean to do church in those contexts. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that Not only do we have to think about doing things regionally, but we have to figure out how are we going to connect people together based on certain kinds of contextual affinities that they may have. Uh, And they may connect in different points. They're connecting their regions geographically, but they're connecting across social media in terms of their affinity and their context. It seems to me, having lived in that world for a long time, that create that has potential to create a lot of conflict about lines of not authority that's the bad word for us but lines of accountability mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be interested to see how that plays out i would say that it creates opportunities for multiple strands of collaboration yes and so one of the things that social media has taught us and all of its goods and its bads is that People are going to connect with who they want to connect with. Yes. And that's the one thing that social media has taught us. And so my challenge is, do we just allow that to just run roughshod over our world? Or do we figure out ways that we're going to enable faithful and authentic community to emerge and people to get connected 
or do we just hold on to the only way that we've known? And so my argument is that we need both. We need the geographic communities of cities and regions, but we also need to build the capacity for social networking and and community to be be built across the internet and across social media platforms. And And the truth is that's already building. You couldn't stop it if you wanted to. That's, right. That's we can't a, stop it. So we can't yeah. stop it. So what we might need to think about doing is what are we going to do? It's like the television. You know, it's like anything. So there are some people that thought the television was just going to be the end of society. Yeah. Yep. Some people think it has been. Yeah. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm there. But then people said, you know what, we're going to use television for ministry, we're going to create television. Now, again, that's not a judgment on whether or not what they did was, you know, was theologically sound. But my point is that if we don't find a way to make authentic and faithful use of these emerging technologies, then we just sit by and watch it, watch others exploit it and take and and take mm-hmm. a direction that that doesn't honor who we are and it is not in line with our commitments. Yeah. And as you well know, some of the big issues around that is standing, who holds standing, the search and call, you know, which has been sort of the ace in the hole for regions in having some say. And again, I know the regions have got to reinvent themselves in whatever the right way they is. So again, I, that I know well. But those are whole church issues. We as a whole church have to decide how ministry works, how people get fine jobs of ministry. I do think, think this isn't at you. In a recent conversation, I was made aware of something I knew and forgot, and that is that while 70-80% of the disciples are rural churches and small rural churches, and we're and we're not a church equipped as a denomination, we're not a church equipped to respond to the needs of those communities. And, you know, I serve a little church, but we're not rural. We we have 15 or 20 people, but I don't think of ourselves as rural, but we are small. And the only reason we're connected is because of me. Right. Yeah. Well, so let me just go back to the point that we were talking about, especially with, with men's ministries. One of the things that I've recognized is that we are accustomed to thinking about the impact of our churches being related to numbers. And because so much of North American Christianity is based on a model that your impact and and the difference that you make is predicated on your numbers, but there are other ways of thinking about impact. There are other ways of thinking about the difference that we make in our communities. And there are lots of congregations of 50 or less people that have more of an impact on the communities in which they're present than a church that might have 500 members. Right. Yeah. I serve one of those. Yeah. (laughs) So so that church that has 500 members, they may have a, you know, a clothing giveaway and a food pantry, but so much of their budget is oriented toward keeping the lights on, making sure they have great worship for the people who come to those congregations. So then you look at that and you think, well, they really have an impact on the people's lives who are coming and enjoying the services that the congregation provides. But there's this church down the road with less than 50 members that's actually has a much bigger impact on their context. And so part of what, and this is again, going down the road, I am eager to explore ways that DHM can help prepare leaders 
both clergy and laypersons to have a bigger impact on the communities in which they are present. And I think men's ministries is uniquely qualified to do that because they're often one of the smallest ministries in the church. Right. Anymore. Yes. Absolutely. uh, And they're also eager. Yes. This is my own experience to make a difference. So you think about things like disciples volunteering, disciples volunteering was a way in which people said, Hey, this is a project that we can build to help this particular community center. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's do this work. So there's that part of it. But then there's also the part of it where you say, and this is, again, where we're going, is that not only let's learn how to help this community center being built, but let's also understand the upstream issues that affect the populations that community center is based on. So if that community center is providing reading services to children in an area, let's understand why the literacy rate is so low mm-hmm. in that particular community. Right. And so there are just all these different ways that I think that we as a ministry need to lean into helping men and women, no matter what size congregations they're in, understand what can their impact be on providing services and to helping people and to help tackle some of the biggest issues we have as a community and society. That's been at least a component. And I think it's been an intentional component on our part, Greg and I's part, in the curriculums, in the programs that we have created and led in our work is to refocus in that developmental model. Let's make an impact by being transformed so Mm. that we can be agents of transformation in the world around us. That's been a a huge part of what we're doing. It's part of what we're talking about during General Assembly at the workshop that we're going to be leading. It's part and parcel of all the curriculum we've done so far. And it's what I share when I go visit congregations or retreats, this idea of This is how we make an impact, and it's not tied to numbers. This is tied to that more ethereal, transcendent reality of finding out who God is calling us to be and living fully into that in community. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's where we need to be, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had one more thing that I wanted to raise, and it's connected to some of what we just talked about. There's also a sense in which what we as DHM can do is to better support health and faithful development. What happens with the regions, which is why we just want to be able to support regions and what they do well and not try to replace what regions do, is that there are a lot of the mechanisms, like you mentioned, search and call or standing, that the regions are better equipped to handle. But what an organization like DHM might be better able to handle is things like care for clergy, supporting clergy who in their times of needs. The same thing that, you know, something like Pension Fund does in terms of what they offer in terms of ministerial relief. What more can DHM do to provide things like ongoing continuing education? And so when I talk about the things that we can use social media to build community, it's really about not replacing things that the regions are good at, but how can we do things that would be supportive of clergy or supportive of nations that aren't necessarily a function of geography or local affiliation. And so that's where 
I think we have the biggest opportunity to utilize things like social media is to provide that kind of care, that kind of educational support, and that kind of nurturing across, you know, America. Just a, a quick PS to that. Years ago, when I first started on staff in Kentucky, we did a program in October called Mom Mission Outreach Month, where we created mm-hmm. as a staff a bunch of different tentacles to that. And one of the things that we did, this goes along with what you just said, Chris, is that we invited 10 pastors from all over the region to come together and meet with two regional staff members. At that time, we had seven mm-hmm. and, and meet with a general unit person in a 24-hour retreat. And the retreat was strictly the general unit person's time. We created the structure and they provided the content. And we asked them to make sure that it was of a spiritual nature. And those were, in all my years, those were some of the best ministries we did. And what made it work, be quite honest, was when pastors got to see Chris Dorsey was a man of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Because of the administrative role you carry, and heavy administrative roles you carry in life of the church, when pastors got to come and say, I know Chris, I got to pray with Chris. Did you know that Chris spends 20 minutes a day every day praying for the church? Yeah. That had such phenomenal impact on our pastors that we never had trouble filling the slots. We usually could get 30 or 40 pastors each month with the staff the way we were configured. And they never not worked. It didn't make a difference who the staff person was. It never right. not worked. Yeah. And so I, I think you're right how we incorporate the social media resources that we have now. But we need to recognize that rank and file pastors, beautiful people, you know, doing working, doing an impossible job, still like to know that Chris Dorsey knows mm. who they are. Yeah. And, I and it matters if we create those those ways of getting that done. Not not so much Alex and Greg. <laughs> yeah, so I was fortunate to be invited by Thad Allen for the Pennsylvania Regional Assembly last year to speak and to just fellowship. And he said, well, I know your time is busy. And if you could just come and preach at this particular time. And what I use, whenever I'm invited, first of all, I'm grateful just to be invited to any region. But I always say, no, if I'm going to come, I'm going to make as much time as possible to be there for the entire event. Because just like what you said, it is the ability to spend time in fellowship, getting to know people and and understanding that we're all Christians in similar ways that does make that difference. And so whenever I get invited out, it it takes a lot to say, okay, I'm going to block out an entire three days to be somewhere. But to me, that is more impactful in my ministry than to fly in one day do my talk and then leave out the same day. Yeah. I really try, at least from my perspective, I try to to be fully present, especially in those times where you just do what yeah. you just described, get to know people, yeah. they get to know yeah. you. It, it makes a huge difference. So I agree. It, it truly matters and it makes their commitment to your ministry significantly stronger. Yeah. I could continue this conversation because man, I'm just, I'm buzzing. We might have to do a part two to this sometime, Chris. You all have an inside track to me. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe one of these times when we come over to Indianapolis and have a staff meeting, we can take a few moments and do something. Love, uh, love that. Chris, I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much yes. for, for your leadership, for your wisdom, just for your, your presence and the way in which you have 
embraced the work that we do, supported the work we do, and and helped us be transformative in the work that we do. Yeah. I appreciate it deeply and appreciate your definitely your time with us today. And I appreciate both of you. And I, again, you all have a special place in my heart for the work that you do. And I just want to be as supportive and encouraging as I can. So thank you. Great. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Chris. Look forward to seeing you in Louisville. All right. Take care. Have a blessed one. You we'll too. see you all soon on another edition of Disciples Men Podcast. Our special thanks to our good friend, the Reverend Dr. Dean Phelps, for providing the special music of this podcast. You can discover more of Dean's music at deanphelpsmusic.com. And you can learn more about the ministry of Disciples Men on Facebook and through disciplesholmemissions.org.